Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 101. This week's feature, if you like Terra Mystica, try out these games. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers for supporting us to bring this episode out to you. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. Welcome to the episode, everyone. We're so glad to have you back for a regular episode. We've been doing some amazing special episodes. And if you haven't listened to our episode 100 yet, please jump back, listen to that episode. That was our top 100 board games of all time. And thankfully, this is not our top 101 board games of all time, because I think it would kill us. You're tired? I'm a little tired. Out a little bit. <laughs> I think we got it all out with the 100. I think we're okay until at least 150, maybe 200. But, you know, you can always find one more game to kind of throw on the list. So for this week's episode, we're going to be talking about one of the hottest games on the top 100 of Board Game Geek, Terra Mystica. Now, you've probably got a chance to play this great game, and in this episode, we're going to tell you what other games you should really check out if you like that game. But before we get into that, we want to talk about some little things that's been going on around the board gaming industry. It's going to seem crazy because it's actually normal for once, but the Origin Board Game Awards were just announced, and the 2016 nominees are out there, and the categories are surprisingly normal. We have a category for board games and a category for card games, category for miniature games, collectible games, family games, and game accessories. And I have to mention this because, of course, Daniel's our big fan here, our role-playing games. So no longer do we have the really strange, mixed-up categories and the oddly kind of throw-together games. We actually got somewhat normal categories, guys. What do you think, Anthony? I don't know if they could have topped last year's all-time best children, family, and party games with, what was it, Archer, Gravwell, and the Tortoise and the Hare. Because <laughs> those three games have nothing to do with each other. It was That was fantastic. I think we talked about this last year, that that was fantastic. So this year, the family games category makes sense, as do the rest of them. So <laughs> there's nothing to make fun of. <laughs> well, well, to be fair, if it was Daniel's family and Daniel's children, they... They would be playing Gravwell, right, Daniel? You're darn right. <laughs> you know, it's been such a long, long growth process for Origins. It it's uh, it started out and it really is essentially a war gamers convention. That's like their big that's their Gen Con. Over the years, it just seemed like that the war gamers have been dragged kicking and screaming back into the mainstream of our hobby, reaching out through their awards to other facets of the hobby. I just think they don't know how to do it. These are war gamers who have to try and please the rest of us gamers. And, you know, give them them some credit for even letting everyone else in the door. They could just keep their their little clubhouse atmosphere going and play their little war games, but no, they, they've opened it up. Everybody can come. It's a great time. They just have to figure it out. 
Yeah, I mean, it happens to the best of us. Uh, the Grammy for metal went to Jethro Tull, like, was that 30 years ago instead of Metallica? <laughs> yeah, I remember it's, that. It happens. <laughs> uh, well, nonetheless, it. let's talk about the categories. So the first category up was board games, not really flashy or anything, just straight-up board games. And the nominees are Champions of Midgard, La Granja, New York 1901, Orleans, and Star Wars Imperial Assault. Now, there are some oddities there. What do you guys think? I mean, first off, Imperial Assault was released in 2014, so that's a tough one to kind of throw in the lump there with several other games that just came out in the last six months. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Orleans 2 might have kickstarted or originally been released before yeah, last absolutely. year, too, right? Mm-hmm. So, and then you kind of have. I mean, Imperial Sword is definitely a board game, but it's kind of almost a different type of board game. You have four more traditional board games, and then you have this big fantasy flight box with an ongoing continuity system where you can... That two-player skirmish mode is kind of growing out almost like a war game in its own right. Mm-hmm. So I guess maybe that's why it kind of snuck in <laughs> in a war game. Yeah, I don't still, I don't know why Origins couldn't find a separate category for games like Imperial Assault. That that seems to be a great bridge between the war game world and the the hobby gamers in general. Um, it doesn't fit in with the others, no. It's a little bit of an odd mix. Lagranja, I've played the game. It's 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 a fine game. It's kind of like somebody who wanted to make a Feld, but it wasn't Stefan Feld. So kind of gets you part of the way there, but it's a little clunky along the way. New York 1901, we all kind of liked. It's a little bit of lighter, kind of the family style. Orleans is a great game. Um, and Champions of Midgard is is a fine game too. So there's some good kind of picks in here. It's just there's still some oddities. Maybe as Drew said, they're still working out the bugs a little bit, and eventually we'll kind of hit on the right year, the right games. And you know, it's it's kind of weird to see that you know games like Blood Rage is not on there, or Pandemic Legacy is not on there. It's just it's a little odd to say the least. They probably at the very least need to kind of explain a little bit as far as why they're picking the games they're picking but maybe after all these years they're just like ah we'll just throw them out there and they'll they're gonna hate them anyway but they're doing better and we appreciate that for card games they have a category here seven wonders duel ash rise of the phoenix born the grizzled medieval academy and welcome to the dungeon so these are card games so that works <laughs> unlike last year where there was just there was a card game that was really a board game there was a board game that was really a card game so we're actually looking at five <laughs> card games this year so that's that's good and there's really good games so these are all these are all really solid games i i have no problem with these nominees i think these are some of the best card games from last year so good job yeah, yeah. i'm really I feel like I want to root for the Grizzled, but then Welcome to the Dungeon segues so well into Welcome to the Dungeon! It's a fun <laughs> and game! Yeah, you know, it's just like, it, it, it's hard for me to... So any yeah. any game that can get Daniel to sing will win an award, is what we're saying. I think so. Pretty much, that's how it needs to be judged. That's its primary, you know, marker of merit, is does it make me sing? Yeah. What's the punnability of the game title? You know, can we use that? Can it be funny? Can it, you know, can it be sang in some way? But, exactly. Uh, all really great games as far as card games are concerned. Um, pretty surprising to see the weight difference in some of these games. It probably would have been smart for them to do something as far as like lighter family games and other kind of heavy card games because Welcome to the Dungeon and Ashes Rise of the Phoenix Born, 
those are you know pretty pretty kind of extreme difference on the weights there but nonetheless still good games and uh like we said before family games they have uh code names co-mix uh doodles fuse and me want cookies and now i will <laughs> leave that to daniel no me want uh, cookies uh, no 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 cookie monster impression i i mean i could uh, I, that's it's been a while <laughs> oh lord can i even me want cook now see that's too like too aggressive <laughs> That's like it's like Cookie Monster after he's been on the streets for a while. <laughs> Hasn't had a cookie in months. <laughs> he's, he's got some withdrawal going it. on. Yeah, he's trying to lose it, man. It's like Cookie Monster if he played Blood Rage or something. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah, so that's the categories there. Obviously, there is a good number of them there. You know, we, we talked about there's also the role-playing games on there. So you have a Cthulhu Britannica London box set. There's a dracula dossier's director's handbook there's fall of magic there's lone wolf adventure game and star wars force and destiny so um some pretty solid rpgs yeah i really hope fall of magic takes it here i mean all, all of them are you know solid uh games it's just the fall of magic was such a it's such an innovative game it's so very different in a lot of ways than the standard a uh, role-playing game world is right now. And the rest of them, though, if you read down, right, it's Cthulhu, uh, Star Wars, Vampire Gothic, right, very typical themes and very familiar play styles. Okay. And I think Fall of Magic is the one that gives us the most interesting new twist. So I hope it's the one that takes the crown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'd be nice to see something new and up-and-coming kind of shake up the system a little bit. So... Some nice nominations, Origins. You're, you're doing a better job, and we really appreciate it, although we do miss the humor of your past award nominees. So, you know, you win some, you lose some. Hey, Chris, Anthony, you guys are – are you are you planning on going to Origins? Uh, actually, Anthony and I are right now talking about heading out to Origins, our first Origins convention. Uh, we all went to Gen Con last year, so uh, at the very least you'll see two of us at Origins and, you know – it's always possible that you might see more of us, or you'll absolutely be able to see more Board Gamer Anonymous listeners at the convention. So maybe we'll be able to pull something together this year. Nice. Do they have an actual award ceremony, like with envelopes that they open and announce the winners? How do they do that? Well, I think, you know, if you go by last year, it's more along the lines of like, you know, they all line up and then they, you know, put a blindfold on them and they shoot them at the end. So <laughs> this year might be different. You know, Origins is always doing things kind of backwards. So maybe they'll give them an award instead of, a, you know, a firing line. But who knows? We're I feel like we're going to show up and our names are going to be on a list. Like, no, these guys can't get in. <laughs> we'll, have, we'll have those shirts on with the big logo on the back. They're like, nope. It's it's fine. We're anonymous. They they don't know us. We're We're good. And now, our Acquisition Disorders. Acquisition Disorders? That's crazy! Only needs the base game, nothing else but the base game. The base game and the expansion, see? Nothing else. Just the base game and the expansion and the promos. The base game, the expansion, and the promos, and of course, the upgraded components. Why wouldn't you have the upgraded components? So the base game, the expansion... Alright, so it's been a month, and even though we talked about our top 100 board games of all time... That is not the end. We are still have some serious acquisition disorders. So we're going to talk about some games that we really want to get our hands on, get to the table, and we're really looking forward to it. So, Anthony, why don't you start us off? All right. So it has been four months since we've done this segment. And in that time, <laughs> uh, 
Wow. So many games have entered my acquisition disorder and then left it because I bought them. So <laughs> I had to, I actually had to look a little bit to see what I wanted to talk about. So there's a couple things I wanted to talk about, but the one that really this kind of grabbed me out a week or two ago, and Chris actually talked about this a while back, and we talked about it on our uh, Tabletop Madness episode too, um, with the theme of the game, and that's Food Chain Magnate. I got a chance to play this about two weeks ago, and I'll, let me just say it was probably the most miserable two hours of my life, but <laughs> after I finished the game, I couldn't stop thinking about it, and I want to play it again to the point where I went online, and there, there is a way to play it online, and I think it's Board Game Core is what it's called. And I, I started a couple games there because I'm just like, I got to work through this again because I know what mistakes I made now that I've played it once. And it is that good of a game that I want to make it work. <laughs> like, I want to solve the puzzle. You know, as it sounds like you are a food chain magnate, you are a CEO, you're hiring people, you're building up your fast food empire. There is a large map of all these houses and little drink icons, and you have to position your restaurant and build it up and advertise and hire people and train them up. And there's so much stuff going on here. I'm not going to describe the game because it would take half the episode. But suffice it to say, as far as a Euro goes, there aren't many games that have as much theme as this, um, nor as much weight. This is a heavy, heavy game with a lot of thinking and a lot of analysis paralysis. But it's all worth it. Like every move you make feels like it's worth it, even if it's a horrible move and it costs you all of your money and you lose by $300 at the end of the game. Um, not saying that happened, just saying if it does. <laughs> um, it is, the game is brutal though. I mean, if it definitely takes a couple plays, you got to get into it because you got to understand the value of the people you're hiring. You got to understand the value of those bonuses that you can get. There's all these bonuses you can get if you're like the first person to produce a hamburger or the first person to train somebody or the first person to advertise. Um, some of the bonuses have a double-edged sword to them where they're not necessarily good in certain situations. So you really have to understand the flow of it. But once you do, it, it totally clicks and it's really, really cool. So this is a game now that I not only want to play again, as soon as Evan, the guy I played with uh, here in Pittsburgh a couple weeks ago, brings it back to the table. But if, if slash when they ever bring it to the U.S., I will almost certainly pick up a copy Right now, the only way to get it is if Splatter reprints it, which they've, I think, on the fourth or fifth printing now. Mm -hmm. And then you have to import it or hope that a local store picks it up. And it's very, very expensive. So I'm not doing any of that, probably. But presuming it's coming here, I'm pretty sure it is. Um, I will you know, take a look at that once it's out because it is a very good game. I'm very, it's still in my head. It's been two weeks. It's still in my head. That doesn't normally happen. So that's a uh, food chain magnet. It's the kind of game that haunts your dreams. So that, that's a pretty good recommendation. It is, yeah. Like, it, <laughs> there's certain, like, Drew will talk about this a little bit later. There's video games like Dark Souls where you're like, wow, I just died 43 times. I want to keep trying, see if I can not <laughs> die the 44th time. It's kind of like that, um, except really just the first time, and it just takes three hours. So I'm sure I will lose again the next time, but maybe not so bad. <laughs> Yes, they've been talking about releasing this game in the U.S., and if you go to some of the major board game stores online, you can actually see pre-orders for this game. It ra it's ranging around $100 right about now. It may drop a little bit more once it actually kind of hits the U.S., but as you said, Anthony, when I got my first play of this game in, we had a full complement. One player just towards the end was like, just completely gave up, and at, and at some point was just 
almost purposely losing money because the game just broke them. It, as you said, the AP is pretty intense here because while you still are doing your own thing, the level of interaction and screwage that goes on is massive. So somebody's building you know, a whole kind of empire for pizza and then you just jump in there and you advertise lemonade and now they have to get lemonade and then someone else jumps in and throws something else there. So your engine, while it is a solid Euro engine, all throughout the game you gotta keep gotta keep your eyes open because that switches dramatically all the time. So it can be a very painful game, even though it is a very simple game to play. You're basically playing cards down on the table and just taking the actions. It's not a crazy hard game to play, but the AP, man, that will that will cost you some issues, some days and Maybe yeah, some, maybe yeah. some therapy. <laughs> yeah, if you don't, it's it's like you said, it is simple. Like once you play it, you're like, oh, that's pretty easy. I can I could teach that now. <laughs> but like actually understanding how everything interacts, and I actually got hit with exactly that. I was picking up pizza, making money, and someone threw a lemonade on there, and I was like, ah, crud! I don't even have the guy who can give me drinks that's yet. True. And so I had to spend three turns getting the drinks, and by then someone had thrown beer on there just for good measure. And I'm like, come on, guys. <laughs> Yeah, like I don't have enough of any of this. You got to get those bonuses. So much of that game is the bonuses. Otherwise, you're really trying to dig yourself out the entire game. But here's the one question I have for you: What table did you find to actually play this game on? <laughs> yeah, we were um, so we played a coffee shop, and they have one big table, one good size, you know, about the size of your average folding table. And we just happened to get there early, so we were sitting there, and we're like, we should play the biggest game we have, and it was this. So. We took advantage of the table that we had. Yeah, that, and it, yeah it was a lot of stuff. So. It makes me think of like board game cafes and such like that that have a table fee. What if you have to put two tables together? It's going to be – got to pay double the fee just to go to that cafe and play that game. I feel it's like if you're great. running a cafe, you got to have like at least two or three big tables. Like You can't just have a bunch of little tables because it excludes half the games. I don't know. A lot of places I've seen, you know, it's like normal, normal sized tables. I haven't seen anything really that big. Daniel, what about you this week? Did finally splurge and buy my first broken token organizer. And that is the Blood Rage broken token organizer. Anyone who got the Blood Rage package from Kickstarter will promptly recognize that after playing with it once, you sort of look at the boxes and go, there are eight boxes here. And I don't really remember how everything goes in. And this is going to take a while, huh? Uh, and the Broken Token Organizer largely fixes that problem. So it, it has labeled spots for all of your monsters, for the big monsters anyway. Every group gets their own little tray. Overall, a great product. It, it was pretty easy to put together, though. I would suggest having some wood glue and a, an X-Acto knife just in case you need to shave something down or glue some stuff together because not all the fits are going to be exactly right. It made a massive difference, though. I mean, I had... Chris, you saw this. I had the Blood Rage game after we played with it on my table for like three weeks because i just couldn't figure out how to put it back together <laughs> into a single box so i finally got my kitchen table back and that's nice so the broken token organizer did help me with that i wasn't super happy about a couple little things so the alt sculpt for the dwarven chieftain has a long spear which doesn't actually fit into the box so it ends up being kind of bent a little bit and that bothers me uh, and these are things that broken token does acknowledge on their website, but it's still upsetting to find that it doesn't fit very, very well. So that's most of what I've been 
purchasing slash looking at purchasing recently. What is mm. this game you guys keep talking about, Blood Rage? Do you do you ever talk? Have you ever mentioned this before? I don't remember hearing Blood Rage. Well, what is Blood it's a Rage? it's a pretty didn't get much press. You know, okay. it's a very small game. It, it didn't I, I win remember, any awards. I remember hearing you guys talk about Blood Rage, but. Blood Rage sounds like a different game, like a mild, very sedate, calm, relaxing game. Yeah, well, you know, once you packed all the rage okay. away, once you packed it away with the broken token organizer, the the rage is now concealed. And the night really nice thing about this organizer is everything from all of the boxes from the Kickstarter, with the exception of things like the dwarf chieftain not fitting in exactly right, will all fit into the one box, and that is amazing. So right. if you have the whole Blood Rage, I definitely think getting the Broken Token Organizer is a good idea. Yeah, I'm thinking about it. I, I can get it all in the box, but it's when you take it, I, I pretty much just dump it out on the table. And I tell people just like start sorting stuff because it's just a pile of baggies with stuff everywhere. So it'd be nice if it was a little more organized. Uh, yeah, I think it really helps to get that organization in. How about you, Drew? What uh, What's your, your acquisition disorders right now? Well, I'll tell you, I... I don't have as much time to read all the news about the upcoming games and drool over the coming attractions. But as I, I quickly scroll through the headlines, one name keeps popping up and, and got my attention. Is it and that Blood is Rage? Dark... <laughs> <laughs> Dark Souls, the board game. Now, this... Dark Souls, the board game, violates so many of my own principles that I've clearly established on this show. It's a video game, which originally a video game, which I ignore utterly. It's a Kickstarter. It's currently being Kickstarted, which I never invest in. And it's a miniature-based game, which I mock ceaselessly. So why Dark Souls? Why has that gotten my attention? Well, Steam Forged Games proclaims that it will be, quote, the hardest board game you have ever played, unquote. Of course that's going to get my attention. I'm really interested in that. Yeah, there's. It's, it's not one of these miniature games where you're just moving pieces around. It's a strategy game with survival skills because you're going to die. you got to figure out how to live. The, the miniatures really become irrelevant in my mind. I can play that game and just focus on the strategy. It's being built from the ground up, so it's not a carbon copy of the video game. And I don't have to invest in Kickstarter. I can wait till after it's published and it's reviewed and then consider purchasing it then. So it, I, I can deal with all of my initial reservations. I'm very curious about what kind of game it's going to be and whether I've got the oomph to, to beat this game and survive. Dark Souls, the board game. Um, any of you guys have any familiarity with the video game, with the background of it? Yeah, I've never actually played any of the Dark Souls games, but I have a, a large group of friends that play it pretty regularly. And when they're playing, sometimes I'll just sort of watch on Steam while I'm, you know, doing work or whatever. And it's a pretty interesting series of games. It's hard for me to imagine how you could port the repetitive defeat mechanic that seems to be central to dark souls the video games into board games effectively but uh it'll be it'll be interesting to see what they do i'm not sure how well this is going to uh be adapted to a board game and keep the feel of the original game video game that's going to be very hard i don't know i'm just imagining some sort of semi-cooperative uh type game um 
where you never really know who's on your side or who's against you or what's going to happen around the next corner. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm curious about it. I want to learn more. Chris, what's, uh, your disorder this month? Well, what I'm really looking forward to is Star Trek Ascendancy. What's supposed to come out in 2016 they're probably looking at either a Gen Con or an Essen release, but you can never be too sure here. Now, Gale Force 9 is producing this game, and they do a very decent job with their games. And there has been some early pictures of what this game is going to look like. And I gotta, I gotta say, I was pretty surprised by it. Basically, the board setup are these planets, and then there are these connecting space lanes, as they call them is actually how you're able to travel from one planetary system to another planetary system by actually moving these space lanes to connect to another planetary system. So it's a very different looking board game. I've never ever seen anything like this before. It looks like it's coming with a great deal of miniatures. It's got all the classic Star Trek races in this game. And uh, what they've been talking about is actually kind of making this your little bit of your own adventure you're kind of exploring the star trek universe and you're going on these different adventures and it's very much a 4x game so you're exploring you're expanding you're exterminating and you're doing other x's so (laughs) you're doing a lot of the 4x type of uh gameplay that goes in here but from a star trek perspective so in the base box you're going to look at the federation the klingons and the romulans but they already have released information as far as the Cardassians and the Ferengi as far as expansions that you can kind of add into this game. So it does very much have that type of Star Trek aesthetic to it. It's a little Euro-y, so you're not going to get a lot of the artwork that you're probably used to from maybe Star Trek Fleet Command or from Star Trek Attack Wing. But there's something very interesting about this game, and if it does play as well as it looks... I'm going to pick this game up immediately. I'm a big Star Trek fan, and uh, it looks like something that Gale Force 9 has kind of hit out of the park. All right, so that's Star Trek Ascendancy. And now, at the table with BGA. So we've gotten a lot of games to the table over this last month, and we want to tell you about the games that really kind of stuck with us this month and let you know what's great about them and if you should be picking them up yourself and playing them with all your friends. Drew, why don't you start us off this week? All right, I will, because I have some uh, encouraging news from my regular Tuesday night game group here in Bennington. We're finally getting a lot of new faces, new regulars that are sticking, which means I've had to change the games that I've been bringing. We're getting six regulars on any one night. Uh, next week, I'm expecting seven, and uh, we should be finally hitting two tables of games from here on out. But last week, I had to come up with games that would sit six people, and I tried a social experiment. I wanted to see how certain player elimination games would play. I mean, would the pace of the game be enough to keep the people interested even after they dropped out. Would the game drag on after elimination? Because you know how when you're kids, all the, the monopolies and all that, the elimination games, they were awful. Being kicked out and the game just would drag on forever after that. But modern elimination games, and the two I tried this week were King of Tokyo, Cash and Guns, both of them very popular games. You realize in modern games, the elimination factor is just not a big deal because it's designed to be such a, a quick 
fast-moving game. In both King of Tokyo Cash and Guns, somebody dropped out about halfway halfway in. They were bounced. So we had that. They didn't get bored. They didn't walk away. They were invested enough in the game that they enjoyed watching to see how the game progressed, how it went along. Of course, in King of Tokyo, it ended quickly because I had bought the card that gives you nine points if you roll one of each on the dice. And I did, and that wrapped it up fairly quickly. In Cash and Guns, the eight rounds, you would think it's a long game, but boy, they shot by, no pun intended, and the Stool Pigeon survived to the end and won the game in that one. Very quick moving. So here's my takeaway from trying out both those games for six people. We should never be afraid of elimination games, even modern ones. It's not a bad mechanism to have. Um, There's something thrilling about trying to stay in the game as long as possible. It's a feature, not a fault. However, King of Tokyo, I think we've already come to the conclusion you should never really play it with six people. You shouldn't really play it with more than four King of New York will probably introduce the six people. That's much better, much better play. But on the other hand, cash and guns should never be played with less than the full complement of six. It was wonderful having six people sitting down and playing at the same time. There is nothing like uh, a half dozen half crazed gamers in a foam filled Mexican standoff. Had a great time with that. So keep bringing those elimination games to the table. Daniel, what did you bring to the table? Well, over the last month, I've played a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of great games, including like Mombasa, fantastic game, a lot, a lot of games that I was certainly going to be the one that I was going to talk about here. But the one that made it here is actually a really strange game called Karuba. And one of the reasons it made it here is it was totally surprising to me. So Karuba is, for lack of a better word, a maze completion game. Everyone sets up floors on one side of a field and then they have these temples that you're trying to get to on another side of the field and every player gets to pick where one of them goes if they're assuming there's four players uh, you all have these sort of tiles that are numbered and they have very specific paths and sometimes they have bonuses you pick up if you stop on them and one player draws from their pile uh blindly so kind of like a bingo sort of lottery system and that tells you what tile you get to play you can either play the tile or you can spend the tile to move a number of spaces equal to the number of endpoints on the paths represented. So if it's a straight line, that's got two endpoints, right? If it goes, if it's got a T, that'll have three. If it's an X, that'll be four. Uh, and the goal is simple. Get there first and get the most points. And it was such a funky and fun game. And one of the reasons it stuck out to me so much is while things like you know, Mombasa, Mombasa was a fantastic Euro, right? One of the best I've ever played. Karuba, I couldn't really find something like it in my head if I tried to look for it. It was an entirely different genre of game than one that I could, I could at least name readily. Uh, I still kind of have some troubles describing how it works. So you know, if what I'm saying doesn't sound interesting, give it a shot and see, because maybe I'm just not describing it properly. Uh, but I think Karuba is a really fantastic game. It's one that deserves to have more of a reputation than it does. And it's one I'm definitely going to get at some point in the near future. I know that Chris, uh, so Chris was there playing with me. I don't know. What did you think of it, Chris? I think you said when we were playing it, that it reminded you of Suro as far as that you're building your own path to victory not to go off the board and kind of lose, but to kind of reach your final destination. And then yet at the same time, it almost had like a bingo mechanic. So like 
Tile 5. And everyone goes looking for a Tile 5, and you put the Tile 5 out there, and then you wait for the right tile to kind of connect things together. Uh, it was a really interesting game. I was surprised. I At the first glance, I was like, really? We're all going to place the same tile in the same spot? But, you know, probably the second, third, fourth tile in, we were all building our own way, and some people had built some brilliant routes. So a interesting family game that's going to scale well for any number of players and probably something that even hardcore gamers would really enjoy too. So that's my game for this month, Karuba. Uh, how about you, Anthony? What did you get to the table? I picked this up not too long ago, and uh, it is the the newest game from the guys who designed The Voyages of Marco Polo, which is probably my favorite game from 2015. So Simone Luciani and Danielle Tastini, I'm probably butchering that, but those are the guys. Um, it is Council of Four. So this is a another medium weight euro from these guys, and it's actually on the lighter end of that. It, I would say it's relatively straightforward. Um, I actually just played this a couple nights ago uh, for the third or fourth time, and it was, I think, maybe with teaching, it was a little over an hour and 20 minutes, so less than an hour and a half with the teaching. So it's relatively light, you know, in that vein of things. And the game itself is fairly unique. It's it's when I, people ask me to describe it, it's hard because one of the mechanics is very much like Ticket to Ride, but the game itself is not actually like Ticket to Ride. But people will latch onto that and be like, "Oh, it's got the cards like Ticket to Ride." And like, yeah, kind of. The idea behind it, though, is that you have this board on which there are fifteen different cities, um, and the board's actually very interesting because it comes in four pieces, and the three pieces at the top of the board, which are where the cities are, are reversible. So you can flip them around and kind of create a different map. So it's replayable, but also certain permutations are harder than others. So you can kind of ramp up difficulty if your group of people has played this game a few more times, or if you're playing with fewer people and you want to make it you know, a little bit harder for people to cut each other off or whatever it ends up being. So it has those 10 cities, and each of those 10 cities has a bonus on it. The goal is to build your houses in each in 10 of those cities. And the very interesting part of that is that when you connect those cities, you're going to get many, many bonuses, which is pretty cool. In front of each of those cities on the bottom half of the board is a balcony with four little meeples, four little colored meeples that are randomly placed there at the beginning. I can't remember how many colors there are, maybe six. And the combination of those colored meeples, you have to match with the cards in your hand. So you're going to be drawing cards throughout the game and they each just have a color on them, very much like Ticket to Ride. And you need to match them to the meeples in that balcony. The cool thing, though, is if you don't have an exact match or you're short a card, you can pay the difference. So you could theoretically do it with only one card, but it's going to cost you 10 gold to do that. Uh, so it gets very expensive. But later in the game, that becomes very important. When you do that, you get to buy a tile. The tile has some cool stuff you get on it. Uh, money, extra points, moving up the track, some extra assistance, bunch of stuff. And then that same tile on a later turn, you could flip over and building in the city indicated on the tile. Each turn's pretty quick. You get to do one thing, buy a tile, place a tile, move the king, who basically just lets you build anywhere, or move one of the guys out of the balcony, which is just a way to get money if you're running out of cash. As you do this, as you kind of network your way through across this board, you're going to get a lot of extra bonuses because you get the one where you place it, but then you also get one for every city you're connected to. So by the time you're placing 10, if they're all connected, you get... 10 bonuses, which is very fun for the person doing it and can take a little bit of time. So everybody else around you will be like, okay, we get it. You get lots of cool stuff, but you all get to do it. So it's okay. The the game itself, though, like I said, it's pretty quick. Um, it ramps up really fast, too. Once you get towards the end of the game, you'll be moving stuff a lot quicker, um, taking double actions a lot of the times, putting stuff down a lot faster. And 
the the one thing that ends up being a little bit worrisome, um, and I've seen it twice now, is that you can very easily block somebody um, by taking a spot that they need or by kind of cutting in and buying a tile that they need. Not unlike a lot of other games, but in these particular cases, if you're like, I need that H tile, that's the only tile that's going to complete this route for me, and someone takes it, then you're in trouble. There are a couple ways to get around that, but in two of the different of the several games I've played, I've had at least one person walk away very, very unhappy <laughs> at the way it turned out, um, which is never fun. You don't want anybody to be that unhappy. But at the same time, everybody else had a great time. And everybody also, you know, was like, this is a good game, but I don't know if I was doing it properly, you know, first plays and everything. I find it very interesting. It's a, it's a unique mechanic. It kind of mixes a few things that you're very familiar with. I like any time that when you place an action, it chains with a whole bunch of other actions because that's just fun. You have to do all sorts of cool stuff. It can lead a bit to a, you know, runaway leader issue, but I think that's going to happen most when people aren't familiar with the game. Because if you do not chain your cities together, if you try to get cities in different corners to get the bonuses from matching the different colors, which is another thing you can do all together, you're not going to do well. You have to match them together. You have to get the chains. You have to move up the, the, the track there that gives you bonuses at the bottom. You have to man, manage your money. There's a lot of things to keep track of. It's by no means complicated, but if you're not... If you don't put an emphasis on one or two of those things, if you run out of cards, for example, and don't have a way to get more cards, or if you run out of money and don't have a way to get more money, um, you're going to have a tough time for a good half of the game. So I think it's a game that the more you play, the more fun it'll be and the more it balances out the competition. But I've played it several times thus far. I've enjoyed it every time. It's a nice, quick, uh, unique type of game. And uh, it's not quite up there with Voyages Marco Polo for me, but it's definitely one that I'm glad I picked up. And that is Council of Four. All right, Chris, what about you? What have you been playing lately? So I got a chance to play Signore, and this is a classic Euro game, and basically the story behind it, it's Italy in the 15th century, and nobles are fighting over power and political control of Italy. So in this game, you are the patriarch and you're trying to get your sons and daughters out there to connect with families marry up and expand influence so your typical euro game so at the start of the game one of the players is going to roll a huge hand of dice now those dice are split up amongst five different colors now depending on the number on the die that's going to affect your own player board and how many actions you're going to be able to take that round because what you're looking at is pretty much between numbers one through six on the dies, and you're going to be able to take four actions each round. You don't have to take four, but you can take four. Now, as you can imagine, you're going to get a whole no bunch of numbers there, and what you ideally want to do is have a final number that is 13 or lower, because if you go above 13, then you won't be able to get the bonus action on the bottom of the board and typically that's a very good action to have so you're gonna pick dice that tend to be a little bit lower but now here's the catch when you pick a die depending on the color of the die you're gonna match it up to your board so it goes from yellow red purple gray and then blue and as the the board goes up to the blue the number on the board rises so if you did say, well, I want to be really smart and get that kind of under 13, I'm going to pick all the ones, twos, and threes. Well, for example, the blue is going to be on the five side. So if you're picking a one, you've got to pay the difference in money. And money is very tight, especially in the early stages of this game. 
So once you do get that die, once you do place it on your board, and once you are able to take an action. Now, that action is can be a number of different things where there are these little special ability tokens up top that you can place your sons and daughters to take that action. There's also an opportunity to be able to do the special action on that color, like place a son or daughter on one of the family areas. In addition to that, there is also a special action which allows you to put a marker on a different color area that will react when you place a die there. So there's a couple of kind of clunky mechanics going on in this game. They all kind of make sense, but it is a very abstract game. You're just basically picking numbers to pick actions, and then the actions affect the board in pretty much the slightest way possible because all of this dice drafting and then paying the money and then picking the actions and placing markers to hold additional actions as possibilities is going to allow you to go up three different tracks, go up an initiative track, and then be able to marry your sons and daughters off to five different areas that are going to give you tokens in the game that show that you have influence in that area and that will score you victory points. Now, this is a fun Euro, but it truly does feel very clunky. Once we finished with the game, we were like, wow, it, it just seemed like it needed one more pass, maybe something additional to kind of make you feel like you were doing something interesting here. And probably what's most surprising about this game is the components. The board is beautiful. The meeples are nicely crafted. The money's a little chintzy, but the dice, the dice look like something from like the 1950s. It's this really ugly, plain-based dice. And since dice do play such a big role in this game, it was shocking that they didn't spend a couple of bucks to kind of raise the quality there. So, Signore is an interesting, okay Euro. If you have the opportunity to play it, I would say play it, but I can't recommend this as a buy. I'm going to say play it if you can. If not, dodge it because you're not going to miss anything. And I think it's just one of these games that's going to kind of fade away into the bargain bin in the future. So that's our At the Table this week. Now let's get on to our feature review. And now BGA's feature review. So for this week's feature, we're talking about Terra Mystica. But not Terra Mystica in the usual way, because you all know about Terra Mystica. It's one of the best board games out there. Board Game Geek typically has it up in the two to three to four kind of spot. It has a lot of rabid fans. There is some amazing, outstanding number crunching going on on Board Game Geek forums as far as how to play all these different races and how to maximize the points. It's kind of become the Euro version of chess as far as these long-term strategies that are being implemented in each and every game. And there's just a high level of competition. But even if you're not into that highly competitive play... Terra Mystica is an outstanding Euro game. Basically, in this game, you're going to get one of these fantasy races. And they could be everything from halflings to cultists to witches to dwarves to giants or chaos magicians. They're just, they're just great and interesting and beautiful artwork as far as these different races go. And there's 14 in the game, and there is an expansion that kind of expands that with Fire and Ice. But even in the base game, you have a large number to choose from, and that race is going to give you a special ability or special abilities that's going to slightly tweak your race when you play the game. Now, the game is kind of played in 
three separate areas. You're going to have your main board that has all of your Catan-looking pieces set up that are going to either block up certain victory point spaces or be available to move around to get special abilities in this game. Second, you're going to have a board. Now, this is a really interesting board, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, where depending on how you build in this game and who you're next to and the material that's made up of the land that you're on, you're going to have to terraform that land. And now we're going back to the Terra Mystica theme, right? So as your race expands, you need your particular environment. Your opponents need their particular environment. So there's some back and forth in this game. It's not a lot of heavy conflict or interaction, but there is just enough to make the game different each and every time. Now, finally, you're going to get these tracks that you're going to rush up, and there's also a number of different bonus tokens. This, this game has a large number of different pieces, all different sizes. It's going to take some setup, but once you get the game set up, once you learn the game, you're really going to enjoy this game. It plays a little different each and every time depending on the races that are in play, but Terra Mystic is an f- outstanding game, and that's why I wanted to bring it to you this week. We wanted to talk about all the interesting elements and mechanics that goes into this game that if you do enjoy those you should try some of these other games that you may not be familiar with to really give you the Terra Mystica experience but in a different realm and in a different way and to start off Daniel's going to take us away go ahead Daniel all right so one of the things I found most interesting about playing Terra Mystica is that when you're picking your initial spaces right you want to be kind of close to someone else but not too close because you want enough room to grow so you need a little bit of space but when you uh, as you make certain decisions during the game there's sort of a sympathetic effect where you can benefit from the decisions that your opponents are making in areas around you and that possibility makes some of the most interesting strategic choices in gameplay for me possibility that the decisions you are making might influence your opponents in a positive way and vice versa that the decisions your opponents are making might influence you in a positive way means that you have to be really, really aware of the goals that everyone has, of the way that the table is shaping up, or else you might just hand the game to your friend. Well, presumably your friend. Though, in this context, I suppose they'd be your enemy. So, I was thinking of, uh, in this line when I was looking for three games that I think are somewhat similar in this concept, though they're very different in the way they play. Now, the first of these is a game called Kalos. Uh, Kalos, I think we've talked about it before, at least as an at-the-table. And I'm going to be honest, not a big fan of Kalos. But it is a very popular game, so it, had, it must have some merit that I'm just not seeing. However, with Kalos, what you can do is you sort of buy the rights to certain pieces on the board. People place their workers there and gain their benefit from it. And then you gain a benefit from them taking that action. So again... What you have is this decision-making, which is like in Terra Mystica, where you need to take a look at the real estate and decide which positions on the board are most valuable for you right now, paying attention to the uh, question of where is everybody else going to be moving? Because if you manage to figure out what everyone else is going to be doing well enough, you can reap enormous benefits through their actions. Uh, Another game with the same sort of, I guess, I'm going to call these symbiotic competitive games, right? They're competitive games where you can benefit from one another, uh, is San Juan. Now, San Juan is a very simplistic version of this, and uh, Puerto Rico has a somewhat more complex version of this. Uh, But in San Juan and Puerto Rico, when you select your roles, which is equivalently to an action selection, everybody at the table gets to take that action. 
So again, with this same sort of decision making, you need to be very aware of not only of your own goals and how you might achieve them most efficiently, but where everybody else is. And sometimes in San Juan and Kalos and in Terra Mystica, you're going to be needing to make decisions you otherwise might not want to make because you realize that if you follow the shortest path between point A and, well, your victory, your hopeful victory, right, go right for the points, you might actually end up handing the game to someone else. Now, the final of these three games that I'm going to look at is Mombasa. It's the final for a couple of reasons. One, because I played it relatively recently, so it's fresh in my mind. Uh, and two, because it's fantastic. It's one of the best games I've played in a very, very long time. Uh, so of all these three, it would probably go Mombasa, then San Juan, then Kalos to my recommendation order. So just flip it and reverse it, right? For Mombasa, there's a couple of ways you can influence other players and they can influence you. Now, one is that simply you can increase the value of the shares of various companies in the game. If someone else holds a large number of shares in these companies, you are giving them points. Likewise, if you put them into a situation where they need to increase the shares, the value of certain shares, or if you see that they're following a certain suit, uh, you know, they're pushing on one of the companies, they're pushing on the Mabasa company, for instance, well, then you just, you can sort of tag along for the ride and get some bonus points without really having to contribute anything. Uh, on top of that, the, the mere increasing of the, the value of the uh, various stock markets, there are key points at which uh, you gain a certain benefit. And if you are the first one there, then anyone who comes after you will have to give you, uh, you get paid again, essentially, right? So if you're the first one across the line, you get your one, one gold or whatever. Then for everybody else who comes after you, you get another gold. Uh, likewise, if you're second, then the third player, when they cross, you get another gold. Uh, so this helps you sort of uh, locking down these key positions. If you can see that, let's say, a bunch of people are rushing Mombasa, and if you can manage to get across that line first, you're going to see a massive, massive advantage. So that's uh, my three games that I think are worth trying if you like Terra Mystica. Specifically, if the thing you like about Terra Mystica is this need to be always aware of and always cautious about the various ways that your uh, choices can help your opponents win if you're not paying close enough attention. So that's my three, Kalis, San Juan slash Puerto Rico, and Mombasa. All right, so those are my recommendations for what games you should play if you like Terra Mystica. How about you, Anthony? What do you have to recommend? thing that really catches my interest i mean a lot of things catch my interest in terra mystica it's a fantastic game it's one of my favorites but there's a couple of specific mechanics that i really really like and the one that i find the most interesting is the strategic planning based on the player power that you get now this we've talked about variable player powers before as a component of games and i'm a huge fan we all are but this goes a step further because the power that you get or the race that you choose in Terra Mystica is going to determine how you play the game across the board. If you ignore what your special power is, if you ignore your benefit and some of the detriments that come with your race, you're going to lose the game. <laughs> and that's very cool to me because not only does it make it replayable from the sense that you can play as all of these races that are in the game, and it's going to be different for each of those Plus, it's going to take several times with each to really feel like you got a handle of how they play. 
but everybody else is as well. So the game is constantly changing, and the permutations of it are just nearly endless, which is why people are so obsessed with this game. So games that have similar ideas that really kind of reach out and create something unique that takes a game that's already relatively complex and just makes it so you're seeing it through this incredibly unique lens of the the race or the powers that you're using really jump out at me. So there's three in particular that either do this directly or indirectly, but do it in a way that makes it so I feel like I'm playing something unique to what everybody else at the, play, at the table is playing, and that changes how I play the game. The first of those is Dominant Species. Now, Dominant Species is a brutal game um, in which you play one of several different types of creatures vying for dominance in this world. Now, everybody follows the same rules, and the player powers here aren't extreme, but they're enough that you have to play the game in the way that's unique to your specific uh, species of creature. You know, if you're going to, if you're an insect and you can grow quickly and you get the extra cubes, you need to take advantage of that. If you're the birds and you can migrate and just spread across the board wildly, then you need to take advantage of that as well, especially towards the end of the game, because that's how you're going to be able to get where you need to go. So it's going to inform the decisions you make early in terms of how you build up, but most especially kind of how you finish the game because everybody's kind of got their own flourish that they can use towards the end that's going to tie things off and hopefully win them the game. The cool thing is, and this is why these kinds of games are so fun to me, is that each race has a way to kind of counter what the other ones are doing if you're aware of what all the other ones can do. So the more times you play a game like this, especially Dominant Species, where there's only the five or six options here, the more times you play it, the better sense you get of how you should play yours. Yes, you can look at what your special power is, but it's going to matter more what everybody else's is too, so you know how to respond. So that's a fantastic one. It's big, it's heavy, it's kind of in that same weight class as Terra Mystica, and uh, it can cause a lot of pain as well. <laughs> it can be pretty brutal in a long game. Um, the next one on the list, also very long, also very complex, but a, a very different theme, is Eclipse. Um, now, Eclipse is like Terra Mystica in a lot of ways. You have a moderately abstract, very cube-heavy Euro that takes several hours to play, um, but it's sci-fi instead of fantasy, so there you go. Now, the game can be played without the special powers. You just play the basic version of the game, and everybody kind of has the same abilities going in, and the game has a lot going on, so... There's no reason, you know, if you're especially if you're learning how to play, not to do that. But if you play with the special powers, it's going to impact, again, how you do everything. You know, what you're able to do that's unique to other players is extremely important in a game like this, especially as you're trying to, you know, whether you have benefits in exploration or combat or, you know, whatever it is you're trying to do is going to fundamentally alter this game from you from the from the very beginning. Um this is one of those ones that it can be extremely frustrating if you miss that. And this really applies to all of these, but especially for Eclipse because of how long it is and because of how complex it can get and how big that board can get. If you don't pick up on it quickly, if whoever's teaching the game um, doesn't help new players kind of realize what their special powers are supposed to be, what makes their race unique to the others, then it's going to be a bit of a rough go for you if you don't pick up on it right away. But if you've played it a few times, if you've had a chance to acclimate, you can use the app to kind of get used to the game that way. Uh, it's really a lot more fun to play it that way. It's more engaging, and you really kind of get pulled into it, kind of the same way you do with Terra Mystica. The third one is actually not nearly as heavy as the other two. Um, takes about half or a third of the time, but is 
Again, one of my favorite games of last year, and that's The Voyages of Marco Polo. Again, we have a game that you could look at it and just say, oh, it's very old player powers. But the difference here is that the different characters that you can have, the different powers you can have in Marco Polo are so powerful and so game-breaking that you have to build your strategy around those cards. If you don't, you're not taking advantage of a huge benefit you have over other players. You know, the ability to move and not have to stop as you drop, you know, different uh, trading posts along the way. The ability to not have to roll your dice, to pick whatever you want them to be. The ability to go anywhere you want and not pay the extra amount if someone else is already there. Each one of these is amazing, but you only get one, so you really need to use it. Um, So, for example, if you know that moving across the board is going to be to your benefit, you need to get a lot of cash and you need to get those movement spaces early and often because you need to move a lot or you're not going to get your end of game bonuses. This is where the strategy comes in. You know kind of what your strengths are. You know what everybody else's strengths are. You know what they're going to go towards. And you need to build a strategy that's going to take that into account and allow you to benefit from it. All of these games have it in common. From the moment you sit down, from the moment you know what you're going to be, you can start strategizing and see this is how it's going to go, going to kind of go. Certain games, games like Eclipse or Dominant Species, the map's going to grow and evolve over time. So it's going to be, you, you do have to be a little on your feet. Uh, there's a lot more tactics involved there. But strategically, you still have to keep you know an eye on what everybody else is doing and kind of how your um, unique powers are going to play into that. So for me, that's one of the most fun parts of Terra Mystica. It's probably, you know, a good chunk of the games in my top 50 have similar mechanics where you really have to think about how your uh, unique situation is going to impact the game or be impacted by other people. And and that's one of the reasons Terra Mystica is so up there for me. Love it. Um, And I think if that's something you enjoy about this game, then these are three games that you will also very much enjoy. Um, And I, you know, again, two very long ones and I threw in a shorter one there for people who want something a little shorter than Terra Mystica. All right. Uh, So that's all for me. Uh, Drew, what do you have for us? Well, you mentioned shorter, lighter games. There's some people, Terra Mystica is not really what you'd call a gateway game. But it's so much fun that you just want to show people and introduce it to people to, to show them all the wonderful possibilities in board games, and yet it's way too much. It's overboard. So I was looking at lighter games. Similar to Terra Mystica, especially in the sense of network building, it's one of the favorite mechanisms I enjoy. I like introducing that because it actually is a a more advanced mechanism, much more so than simple route building. In route building, it's like ticket to ride, point A to point B. Network building, a a lot more complicated uh, decisions have to be made. So it's like the next step up from, from route building. So you want something lighter, a secondary game to show people. And when I talk about heavy and light, I'm using Board Game Geek's scale of heaviness. Terra Mystica is rated 3.9 on a scale of 1 to 5. That is really heavy for a very popular game. So the three games that I'm choosing, uh, suggesting now, are actually at least a point and a half lighter, 2.4 or less on that scale. Uh, it might be a better introduction to uh, Terra Mystica-style network building great things to choose from. And I was really fortunate in that I have John McCallion's collection in my basement 
And he has a lot of Euro games, a lot of German games, and network building is something he enjoyed uh, purchasing and uh, keeping, holding on to. So all three of these games were in his collection. I had a chance to check them out, really dig into them. Terra Mystica is an abstract game at heart. It's in a fantasy world, has really no theme, no setting. I think it's a good thing. I really get into that abstract sense of it. But if you want a similar game that has a more historical slant or uh, have to do with real human civilizations, all three of these games fit that. Attica, China, and Kingdom Builder. First one I want to talk about is China from 2005, Michael Schack, the German designer. In China, network building, it, it's more than just filling up an area and trying to have area control. Network building is about really a branching out into a lot of different regions, but trying to keep together so that one part of your network can benefit another part of the network as well as benefiting from the players building around you. Balance is the name of the game in China. You can't concentrate on one strategy too much. You're, you're establishing a network of houses, sending out emissaries out on roads to the further reaches of China. You want to be successful at that because everyone scores in each region. You can't concentrate. You can't just stay at home. You get a lot of points for that region. You just won't score anywhere else. I like games that allow you multiple players to score in each part of the board. And it's not, it's not like president. It's not like presidential primaries where it's winner take all, but everybody gets proportional amount of points. I like that. It's the quintessential networking game because it encourages you to branch out and, and widen out and try a balanced strategy. It's China published by Uberplay. Now, the second game I want to present to you is Attica, a 2003 game by another German designer, Marcel Andre Merkel, who mostly works with apps now. As you can tell from the name of the game, this is based in ancient Greece. And its type of network building is similar to an abstract game that I like very much called Blockers, or I know it as Uptown. It's the exact same game, just different artwork. It's where you score for having fewer networks or fewer pieces in your network. And obviously, if you have just one interconnected network, even better. But in multiplayer games, you can't do that. So you're trying to keep together as much as possible. In Attica, the more discrete networks that you're forced to build, the more you have to pay for them. So you're trying to keep it together. Attica is not an easy game to find, so I'm not talking too much about it. It's out of print, but it's similar to the number one game on my list, which is Kingdom Builder. It's my top recommendation for network building, created by Donald X in 2011. It's a generic sort of European medieval setting, but it does what the title says. It builds a kingdom by building out your network networking throughout the land. Like Attica, it has a modular hexagonal board for greater variety and replayability. China, on the other hand, offers expansion boards of other lands, so you can keep replaying it in Scandinavia and Japan. And yes, they do call that China, Scandinavia, China, Japan. And like Attica, Kingdom Builder's map is broken up by various terrain types. And similar to Terra Mystica, it has variable effects on you. 
And like Attica, you're better off if you don't widen out into too many terrain types. You can't branch out too much. Building next to an already established location can pay off in the long run, similar to Terra Mystica. I mention Attica a lot because it's really the kind of networking game I like. It's just you can't find it. Kingdom Builder is, is more widely available. There's even an app for it for iOS, so you can check it out there. I think you'll like it. All three of these games are actually much lighter than Terra Mystica, but have that same satisfying network building mechanism. Kingdom Builder is from Queen Games. It's my number one recommendation for lighter network building games. Chris, how about you? What would you recommend? Well, when I'm playing Terra Mystica, what I'm really entranced by is the board. Now, in particular, what really strikes me here is if you know anything about Terra Mystica, it's about terraforming the land. So when you start out the game, you get to start out on one of your plots of land, depending on what race you are. And that piece of land kind of allows you to kind of build out from there. So each little hex has a really kind of interesting gameplay element. How many different levels, how many times do you have to kind of terraform that land until it matches the environment that's good for your race? Now, for me, I love area control games. I love maps that kind of give us some feedback. So what I've done here is I've picked three games in which territory building has a particular gameplay element that cannot be ignored, where in fact, the map does matter. So starting on a little bit of the lighter end, as far as the map mattering, but not as far as the heaviness of the game, is Rune Wars. Now, we've talked about this game at length because we really do love this epic fantasy game. So once again, going back to the fantasy theme, like in Terra Mystica, but here, it's a lot more Americlash. It has a lot more theme to it, great artwork, great miniatures. And the object of the game is not to conquer all of the lands, but to benefit from the lands that you start from and how you expand and which hexes do you take over because each and every hex has some sort of different environmental element to it. So it can provide you with resources or it can block off a certain side because of the mountains or because of the water or maybe there is a city located there that you want to kind of capture and add to your empire or maybe those resources are something that your opponent needs and if you can just take over that little area it's going to starve them from the resources they need and drop down their military to a point where they can't come back in the game so each hex in this game is very important and what's really interesting is the game board gets built by all the players so as each player is putting together a bunch of these different hexes that has a whole bunch of smaller hexes in it, you really want to strategize on how you put that together. Hopefully, you get a good spot to kind of start off with and how the environment really and truly does affect gameplay. Now, on a little bit more kind of strategic way, I want to talk about a second game in which the map really does play into the game a great deal. And that game would be Trains. Now, if you haven't played Trains yet, Trains is a deck-building game that employs a board in a really deep and meaningful way. I remember when this game first came out, everyone was like, oh, it's just like Dominion, and then throwing the board in, the board has nothing to do with the game. But in fact, when you're playing the cards to build these different rails to kind of expand your network of trains, 
you really want to keep in mind the territories because what you're doing by laying these tracks in these different territories, you have to pay attention to the different spots. So there can be a territory penalty, and that varies depending on if you're dealing with just kind of normal land or forest land. There's also waterways where you have to account for a penalty there. And then there's the city penalty. If you're going to build in a city, it's going to be more expensive. And then there's stations in the cities, which is going to vary, and that's going to cause you some problems. Not to mention other rails that your opponent has laid down that can make it too expensive for you to build through that area. So each of these hexes, once again, does play big. And while you're not terraforming the land, you are building rails on that land, and that land really does affect how far you can go. And especially, depending on how your opponents build, you are either benefiting from that situation or it's blocking you in in that situation because it's just too hard to get through, just like terraforming in Terra Mystica. And finally, I want to talk about a game that's really close to Terra Mystica in that way, and that would be Deus. Now, Deus also has a card mechanic in which you're going to be playing a, a hand of cards, and each of these cards are going to have special abilities, just like any kind of good Euro game. But in fact, this board is really interesting. Now, you've probably seen this game before just by the way the board looks. While it kind of has a Settlers of Catan look to it as far as how the hexes are placed together, in fact, the hexes are kind of rounded off. So even though they're, I guess, the way they play, they are hexes, they're kind of like little bubbles kind of stuck together in a big bubble hex. Now, that's not the end of it. Each of these small bubbles as part of this large hex bubble uh, contains an element that you have to take into consideration. So you may have forest lands, you may have clay, you may have water, you may have stone. And depending on what cards you play and what the building allows and where the building allows you to build, those areas are going to be essential. So you can't build certain buildings in certain areas and you can't build, for example, buildings in the waterways. You need the ships, which also, strangely enough, count as buildings. So depending on where you build your buildings, you can block off opponents, and more importantly, you can surround barbarians. Now, the barbarians in this game set up little tribal areas, and part of the way to win the game and also to end the game is to collect all the victory points from those barbarian areas, and you do that by surrounding them. So you do have a lot of interactive elements in Deus that are very similar to Terra Mystica as far as dealing with where your opponent builds, being blocked out from certain areas, and the material of that actual landscape is going to have a big difference in gameplay. And later on, once you do have some buildings built up and you play a card, it's going to trigger certain areas based upon that particular material for that landscape. So... There is so many elements to Deus that you can kind of harken back to Terra Mystica. But if you're looking for different games in which the map truly does matter, I highly recommend Rune Wars, Trains, and Deus. So that's our feature. If you like Terra Mystica, try out these games. Hopefully these mechanics, these themes, these gameplay elements really kind of sparked your interest. And you'll try out a wide range of games that kind of harken back to this amazing game that we love so much. And now, our final round. And it's our first final round in five months. Man, I miss this. Um, 
One of the things that we've heard a lot of and probably too much of uh, over the last couple of months was a lot of discussion about publishers and their pricing and discounting policies. Well, I want to brush all that aside and just talk about some other publishers that manage to stay out of those discussions. Publishers that just straight up give you the biggest bang, the best value for the buck. Publishers we enjoy buying games from. As a disclaimer, we don't get free games from these companies. We just like paying a fair price for a good game. For me, that publisher would be R&R, which uh, publishes great games for the whole family. Fun-style party games like Hanabi or Time's Up. Um, interesting theme games like First and Goal. Even their strategy games won't break the bank. Cole Baron and Mombasa, they top out at $45. They have a deep catalog of reasonably priced games. That's R&R. That's my choice. Uh, Anthony, what would you say? Yeah, for me, I'm going to go with a, a relatively new company, but one that from the start made a, a point to pack as much value into each box as possible, and that's Stonemaier Games. The, the games they produce, the quality of the games is so high that the price you end up paying for it, while comparable to a lot of other games on the market, what you get out of that box is fantastic. From you know little things you wouldn't even think of, like the finish on the cards or the quality of the board, um, the components are just very high quality and everything is uh, stands up to a lot more wear and travel, I've noticed, uh, especially those boxes. And with new games coming out, like the deluxe version of Scythe, which we obviously don't have yet, but you just look at what's going into that. It's not an inexpensive game, but it's not a game when I spend that much i look at it and think well that was inflated a little bit now it's very clear where that money is going so yeah i've been very impressed with that and i you know i would not balk at paying you know whatever their ass whatever the msrp is for any of their new games if it's a game that you know i want to have on my shelf daniel what about you for me it has to be wizards of the coast you know they their games in general but of course especially their role-playing games i mean so i spent oh i don't know let's let's go big and say a hundred dollars on Dungeons and Dragons 3.5. And I played that game every week, four hours a week for three years. That's a pretty good return on investment. I think just in terms of sheer quantity of gameplay per dollar spent, it's going to be hard to beat role-playing games in general, but anything by Wizards of the Coast especially. So that that's my go-to, will-pay-MSRP guys. How about you, Chris? Well, this may be an f- unfair comparison, but the company that I really feel gives us the best bang for the buck would have to be Cool Mini or not. They've done an outstanding job as far as their Kickstarters are concerned. We've talked about Blood Rage at nauseum we've talked about arcadia quest and its unlimited number of miniatures that we keep picking up but there's also zombicide which has a number of just outstanding expansions with tons of miniatures the boxes are so heavy but even their smaller games like the grizzled has out some outstanding artwork and great gameplay so when you do pick up that game you feel like you're getting something that is high quality now what game you pick up is completely up to you, but Cool Mini or not really does high quality, whether it's in their components, whether it's in their artwork and game, or even their theming. The World of Smog on Her Majesty's Service really is thick and rich with themes, so I feel like they really give you the best bang for your buck. 
All right. Thanks, guys. Mutual uh, testimony to some publishers that we love. That is our final round for today. So that's everything for this week. Please keep in contact with us on Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes and Stitcher. And please, if you can, we really want you to get down to our Board Game Geek Guild. We have a lot of great content, our podcast, and especially us. We're there. Kind of geek friend us so we can talk about more board games. And we'd like to thank all our Patreon backers. They really do help us bring an episode to you each and every time. And it really does mean a lot to us. So if and when you do get a chance, check us out on Patreon.com. Until next time. This is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. And we'll save you a seat at the table. Now, not too far away because we want it far enough so that we can kind of build some additional seats, but we want it close enough so that we can gain some additional victory points. You understand, right? Now I get it. Okay. <laughs> Wait for it. <laughs> yeah. What a bump. Yeah.